1: Welcome to this special live streaming edition of the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way for you to keep on top of all the news out of China with our daily access email newsletter, our website, which is just chock full of terrific original reported pieces as well as op-eds and, of course, through our ever-widening range of videos and podcasts. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Gwil, coming to you today from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Joining me from Nashville, Tennessee, is the man singly responsible for the hoarding of most of the state's toilet paper, and especially paper towels, which he's stored in this enormous warehouse, which serves as a cult headquarters also for him. Um, and they've been there since March. I've told him he should stack them inside that room that he's recording in to absorb some of that nasty echo and vastly improve his damn audio. But he just never listens. You never listen, Jeremy. Jeremy, greet the people. (laughs) Hello, people. (laughs) I mean, of
0: all the things that I might hoard, toilet paper is... Definitely not one of them, but I'm amazed. I don't know if this is the same around the country. There are still toilet paper and paper towel shortages. Like our local supermarket is still restricted to buy only two packets at (laughs) once. Anyway,
1: as you say, anyway, (laughs) uh, as most of our listeners are doubtless aware. Beijing has set a very ambitious goal for itself, the complete eradication of poverty in China this year, 2020. Uh, we thought we'd do a bit of a reality check and see how the rhetoric and the reality actually compare. Have the goals been derailed by the COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, has poverty actually been eradicated? Uh, how uh, How is poverty actually measured? How should we think about the successes and the shortfalls in poverty alleviation to date?
0: Joining us to discuss all of this is Gaoqian, who was on our show a few years ago when we could still record things in person, those lovely old days. I have such nostalgia. (laughs) Um, Gaoqian is a professor at the Columbia University School of Social Work and the founding director of the Columbia China Center for Social Policy. She's a leading authority on China's social welfare system. She's also on the faculty of the Weatherhead East Asian Institute of Columbia University and a public intellectual fellow of the National Committee on United States-China Relations. Last time she was on the show, we talked about her book, Welfare, Work and Poverty, Social Assistance in China. And right now, as luck would have it, she is working on a book about our very topic today, China's efforts to eradicate rural poverty by 2020. Gao Qin, welcome back to Seneca.
2: Very happy to be back. It's a nice gathering and you're welcome to come to New York and hoard all the things <laughs> you want. We have plenty.
1: (laughs) Also joining us is Matthew Chitwood. Matt spent two years in a remote mountain village in Yunnan province in southwestern China, where he observed firsthand the drastic social and economic change that's taking place in rural China. He's only been back in the U.S. for, what, a few months now, but he previously taught at some of the the better-known study abroad programs uh, in China, including CET and CIEE and where there be dragons he also worked for the bill and melinda gates foundation um and the united states department of critical language scholarship program where he was secretly embedding chips in in innocent chinese rural people you know in in accordance with bill bill gates's sinister plot <laughs> um, that's uh, shameful, shameful uh, Matt is an alum not only of the Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, SICE, uh But also of the Hopkins Nanjing Program, the excellent Mandarin program uh, there in Nanjing He's also currently working on a book based on his fellowship research in rural Yunnan Matt, welcome to Seneca, great to have you
3: Thank you, pleasure to be here and I would say welcome to Idaho as well. But if you try to come hoard our toilet paper, uh, you might find your life in danger there. So be careful.
0: <laughs> you have more guns than New Yorkers, huh? <laughs> we, we,
3: well, I don't know about that. Not sure about the ratio there. Leg- legally registered ones, yeah. Uh, we, we thought
1: the two of these guests would just make a terrific pair to tackle this particular topic, of course, because Gauchin can give the quantitative, the big picture, the sort of national level view about you know, policy development and major approaches to poverty alleviation, while Matt can give us, you know, a real sense of how all this translates into reality on the ground. So let's start
0: with the big picture and with Gao Qin. Uh, How much of a personal project is this of Xi Jinping's? Did he significantly prioritize poverty eradication and make it a signature project? That is certainly the impression I get from my daily reading of the Chinese state media. It has been one of the major themes associated with Xi on an almost daily basis, Uh, But was this something that you imagine would have been recognized as within reach or as a priority for any Chinese leader and as something worth investing in?
2: It's certainly a signature campaign launched by Xi Jinping himself in 2013 before it became an official policy. So Xi Jinping first gave a speech about uh, the targeted poverty uh, eradication um project in 2013 at the end of the year and then quickly it became policy and a series of policies rolled out it's in 2015 it became the official chinese government's war on poverty um uh, if you read the official uh, newspapers you see xi jinping is all over the country visiting poor villages uh one of, uh, a few of them are in Yunnan. Uh, so he very much, uh, considers this his signature policy. And, uh, uh, one of the, uh, projects I'm working on is to analyze how the official narrative, including Xi's own narrative, talks about poverty eradication in rural China by the end of this year. That's
1: fascinating. Um, staying with you here, Gautzin, is there, to your knowledge, any precedent for this are, are you or Matt I mean are you either of you aware of any other major nation in the world that has undertaken something as as ambitious as this as audacious as this giving itself a quite short-term deadline for the total eradication
2: of poverty uh, Matt if I may I conduct the research in both the Chinese historical uh context and the global context in the chinese context the chinese leaders have always prioritized poverty eradication poverty uh alleviation but never before was a clear goal of eradication set so this is unprecedented in china in the global context uh, you guys are probably familiar with the uh, Lyndon Johnson's war of poverty in the 1970s uh, mm-hmm. 60s um That was grand and achieved a lot, but it's not entirely finished. In fact, there's a body of literature looking at the progress and the short force of that campaign. In the UK, Tony Blair tried to end child poverty during his government. They achieved a lot, but again, not a kind of eradication at this great, scale.
1: Great, great.
0: Uh, so let's review the metrics. How how does China actually define poverty? How, and how does that compare to other countries, whether developing or developed? Um, I remember, Gaoqin, being quite surprised when we last spoke uh, with you on, on a podcast at how China actually counts its poor. Could you uh, describe the metrics?
2: Uh, yes, I think Matt has some on-ground evidence on this, but China right now defines poverty based on an income poverty line that was set in 2010. Back then, it was 2300 yuan per person per year, uh, and that's for the rural areas. So it's a rural national income poverty line. Every year it's adjusted. In this year, it's about 4000 yuan per person per year. Uh, In the U.S., we still use an income poverty line as well, but the calculations are a little bit different. In many other European countries, they use a relative poverty line, whereas the Chinese and the U.S. poverty lines are absolute, so it's set at a certain level. And we compare people's income to that line. In Europe and other countries, they use a relative poverty line which calculates the poverty standard or threshold using 50 or 60 percent of a society's median income level. So it's tied to the median income level and to some extent the relative uh, income distribution in a society. Just
1: out of curiosity, if China were to use a relative poverty line and, and assess it at f- say 50% of median income, would that be significantly above the level that it sets right now at an absolute?
2: Yes. It's much higher. And, and poverty eradication would be much harder.
0: If I can ask both of you to just put this in layperson's terms, are poor Chinese people poorer than poor Europeans and Americans or not? Are they richer?
3: I I think that one of the things that I I took away from being in the village and seeing this campaign in action one metrics super super important to uh, knowing what you're measuring and how you're how you're making progress uh, on that and so um, then you have a standard that you can compare across the country and also to other countries. Uh, I would say you know the metrics that Dr. Gao is talking about. Um, I was struck by, you know, the campaign sounds large and grandiose, right? We're going to eradicate poverty by 2020. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. Only the communist party can accomplish something like that, right? Uh, at the same time, and, and I will say, yes, it is an incredible feat, uh, when, if, when they do it by the end of this year, uh, at the same time, it's a, it's a fairly low bar, that they're setting, right? So um, roughly what I saw was about $500 US per person per year. Uh, the other metrics that, that I saw them using on the ground uh, it was a one, two, three campaign. So one, the the income threshold of about 500 US per person uh, per year, two being two, no worries. So not having to worry about food or clothing uh, and then three guarantees. So safe housing, access to healthcare, access to education. So this one, two, three campaign being kind of the, the standard of metrics. Uh, and, uh, you know, in reality, when, when the bar is, when the bar is that low, um, yes, they are absolutely still very poor. So I, I spoke with, I I remember sitting down with my neighbor, neighbor Lee in the village and going over uh, how his life had changed prior to being officially impoverished two years prior, and then being officially lifted out of poverty as I was sitting with him. And you know, what he expressed to me is, uh, I guess I'm not poor anymore, but I sure feel very poor still. Uh, so compared to, I don't know how that compares to other other countries, um, but compared to themselves, uh, prior to that campaign, after that campaign, um, there is still very much a sense of uh, being poor, but uh, at the same time, you have to start somewhere. And I think that's the importance of these metrics. That's the importance of this very intentional campaign to start somewhere. I think this hopefully builds momentum and hopefully rolls into something that continues into the future to to make the lives of my neighbors better. They're
1: starting in this case with rural poverty. Uh, how significant, Gautzian, is it that it's only rural poverty which is actually considered poverty in the Chinese? I mean, that was one of the surprising things that I took away from our last uh, conversation, too, and from reading your book, do you, either of you have an, maybe numbers around, uh, if that poverty standard were applied in a, an urban setting, would that significantly ex- expand the number of people in poverty in China? Uh, or is that low enough that it doesn't make sense, uh, that it does make sense that it not be included in China's measure of poverty?
2: Uh, thank you, Kaiser. This is a important and good question. If we apply the rural poverty line to urban areas, urban poverty is extremely low, about, uh, I think, below 2%. So urban poverty based on this standard is not an issue. That's partly why the Chinese government decided they're going to concentrate on rural poverty. Uh, another aspect is uh, the context of urban versus rural China is so different. In rural areas, people used to have no social protection, very little healthcare protection, pensions. Now they have more of it, more of the kind of social protection. But at the same time, income inequality has been rising so rapidly. So as Matt just mentioned, people, even after escaping poverty, still feel poor. Um, yeah, they certainly don't feel they're living a good life compared to the well-off, especially those in the cities uh, who live, many who live a glamorous life. Of course, in urban areas, there are those who suffer. And that's another issue. I think the Chinese government will pay attention to it, uh, to urban poverty after 2020. But rural poverty is at a different scale and different depth. Uh, than urban poverty. Another thing Matt just talked about the one, two, three standards. The one, which is the income standard, is easier to be met. The two no worries and three uh, assurances are harder. Many rural areas have.
0: Um, Gachin, could you just explain the uh, two no worries and the three assurances? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, this is great.
1: I mean, I'll, I'll, do it, I'll try See if I remember it. E-da-bya. And 三保证, right? uh, mm, 好, <laughs> yeah.
2: The, the one, uh, standard is the income standard, meeting the poverty threshold. The two no worries is not to worry about food and clothing, right? Um, the three assurances are to assure people have access to education, healthcare and housing. Um, but in rural areas, to achieve the two no worries, Uh, especially the three assurances are much harder because you require so much infrastructure building. Uh, I know from where I grew up in Shanxi, the mountainous areas, to have water, clean water, is no easy feat. And if the government can bring that to the poor people, that's one major achievement.
0: Absolutely. So... Um, A new, I think, government website at the URL fpzg.cpad.gov.ca. Easy to remember. Has a countdown clock. Yeah, very easy to remember. Uh, This website has a countdown clock to the end of poverty, and it's, of course, set for the end of this year. So we have, uh, right now, 126 days and just under 14 hours to go. (laughs) So let's not keep our audience in suspense, Matthew and Gautian. Um Let's do the reality check as promised and put the big question plainly Is China on track to actually eradicate poverty, at least by its own definition of poverty, by the end of the year? Matt,
2: go ahead. <laughs> oh,
3: man, put it on me. Okay. Uh, so uh, the easy, the quick and easy answer is absolutely. Uh, China is absolutely going to eradicate poverty. By the end of this year, you can fully expect to see headlines uh, to that uh, to that effect um, coming out this fall, and the progress that they've made, the the huge numbers, and poverty is gone. Uh, but again, what's important to to realize is the contextualization of that, what that actually means, what the metrics are that that Dr. Gao was just talking about, and the low bar that that is. So why I say absolutely, I mean we've seen incredible incredible progress in this so you know 2012 uh, about 100 million people were officially impoverished at the end of last year that was reduced to 5.5 million and Dr. Gao has some great, great reports on this with charts that, you know, have the amount of financing that the government has put into this, you know, going up exponentially. So if you just look at the amount of money going into this at the end of last year and divide that by 5.5 million people, you know, they are all out of poverty and millionaires. Actually, they're you know, doing quite well uh, with that money if, if they were to do that. So absolutely, those 5.5 million people are going to be lifted out of poverty poverty by the end of this year. Um, But yeah, important context is uh, realizing that's a very low bar. It's only extreme rural poverty. We're not talking about urban poverty uh, at all. And then the questions of, you know, moving forward, what happens after they achieve that goal, right? How sustainable has this effort been? How much of it is, uh, you know, entrepreneurship and income generating uh, opportunities that have come uh, to people now? And how much is it uh, dependence upon the government to continue to uh, to not be impoverished?
0: Um, and could I ask a follow-up question? Um, if, uh, like your neighbor Lee, uh, sufficient numbers of people read, the, they watch the daily news broadcast or read the headlines on their mobile phone that says China has eradicated poverty, And there are a number of them that feel, but I'm still really poor. Is there a danger here for the Communist Party of, you know, blowing their own trumpet a little too loudly?
3: So, what I heard on the ground, um, I I think was a balance of two things. Obviously, there's always going to be grumbling, right? One thing I heard was, 九牛一毛, right? So, like, uh, you know, nine cows and one hare. So, what the government is, is, Putting into rural areas or providing people is is just a drop in the bucket, you know, compared to what they have or what would be able to do. So there's grumbles about that, about uh, local poor implementation, grumbles about corruption, of course. But broadly speaking, what I heard uh, was their lives are materially better and they're and they're better off now than they have ever been before. So even my neighbor, neighbor Lee, where he would say he's still poor, comparing comparing to what his life was like you know, 20 years ago, he's living his best life right now, materially far better off. And the poverty eradication campaign has contributed to that. Uh, he does have more money to renovate his house some. That's been a big part of the policy that I saw in the village where I lived, new houses that went up because people got free money from the government, they got low interest loans from the government, and they borrowed from family and friends to do it right um, that, you know, when they're building a house for the first time. So I think uh, their lives are markedly improved. They feel that uh, materialistically. And so when the, when they themselves hear those headlines, um, I don't think they would be bitter or feel like it's um, just a lie or propaganda. And I think you see that uh, in uh in approval rates uh government approval rates as well um I, I think some of us are familiar with the the ash center at harvard they just came out with a with a report looking at you know the resilience of the communist party in china and how that's that's gone they started doing surveys in 2003 uh and released a report last month saying um you know a, approval rates of the communist party uh, are at, at an all time high uh, compared to the the last two decades, which is significant. And uh, that there was greater satisfaction in these low income uh, inland areas in China. So places like this village where I was living, um, com- you know, compared to city or, or, you know, areas addressing urban poverty.
1: Yeah, I would just add very quickly that we just ran a piece on sub-China, uh, which looks at the Ash Center study, uh, kind of with a critical eye uh, it'd be probably a good perspective to have on this as well. I, I'm, I'm curious though we usually talk about oh when we look at the the, the liang bao zhang, or I'm sorry the yang uh, we usually think of it as a, a trio of things food clothing and shelter. you mentioned all this new building of, of houses. why is shelter not included among the three uh, the, the 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 two no worries?
3: So shelter would be included in, in the, the three, the three assurances uh, or the three guarantees uh, that okay. that. Right. in that third one. Um, yeah. And, and safe housing, right? So in the area where I lived, that was a, a big case to be made for tearing down all the old, you know, earth, rammed earth and wood houses, those structures, tearing those down and building up these two, three story yeah. concrete blocks, right? I think interestingly, some arguments, arguments could be made that um, those aren't necessarily safer in earthquake prone zones. Uh, so, you know, in terms of what is safer housing and, and motivations for that in terms of stimulating the construction uh, economy or, or whatnot, just in- interesting questions that arise from that. And also people now having these big homes, non-income generating assets that they've borrowed from family and friends through this eradication campaign, but now they have debt. Um, so are they more, uh, you know, in, in debt and more impoverished now uh, or or better off? Certainly, they think that they are better off in their new homes. And uh, I, I would agree, um, seeing seeing the comparison of the homes that they now live uh, I in.
1: I want to get gauching the way in, though, on, on this bigger question of has China succeeded or is China on track to succeed? Um, would you agree with Matt that it is on track by its own measure to succeed in er- eradicating rural poverty?
2: I think the official narrative will be the same, that China will succeed in eradicate poverty, rural, extreme poverty by the end of this year. And already we see official reports, even uh, researchers who claim that already. but I agree with Matt's uh, discussion about the sustainability and what happens post 2020. Researchers uh, are already talking about what poverty will look like. It's not that poverty will no longer exist in the Chinese land. Uh, Poverty will exist in dynamic and different ways. In addition to urban poverty, which needs to be addressed, rural poverty will be multifaceted. Uh, I'm now doing a new project looking at multi-dimensional poverty that is not based on an income or consumption level, but based on people's material well-being and deprivations in these different dimensions. So Mm. those kinds of poverty will exist. And uh, it's a, a big topic for the government, for scholars, for the public to decide how the Chinese people and the Chinese government will consider poverty right. after uh, this year. I, I,
1: it strikes me that five hundred dollars a year sounds just abysmally low when we consider that that's less than uh, what the federal government has been giving in an additional unemployment subsidies per week to Americans uh, during the COVID nineteen pandemic. Although that's apparently not going to be the case any longer, uh, but the.
0: Although, of course, if Americans, if uh, Chinese can be assured of health care, that might put them way ahead of <laughs> Americans, no matter how much money they have in the bank. But the,
1: other, the other thing is, is food, of course. I mean, because these people are, are rural and therefore are either themselves engaged in agriculture or are very close to it. So, uh, I mean, I, this multidimensional study that you're going to be doing, it's going to look at factors like caloric intake, presumably, as well. Right. And since, you know... The $500 is is cash, so people who are not growing cash crops, who are growing food crops, and presumably don't take it all to market, they actually consume part of that, so... Uh, maybe that's part of it. But anyway, Gaoqing, you have written the most authoritative book in English on how rural poverty alleviation actually works. And the main tool for addressing rural poverty that the Chinese leadership has at its disposal is Dibao. It's, it's a means-tested minimum guaranteed income scheme. Uh, Dibao is short for 最低生活保障, or the, uh, uh the, the minimum guarantee of, of yeah, minimum, basically, livelihood mm-hmm. guarantee. Last time you were on the show, you went very deep into how the system works and what its main problems are, the problem of, of leakage and the problem of mistargeting. Could you could you provide an overview of the d system again and, and how it works? Just uh, who is and isn't eligible, how it's funded, how the funds are dispersed, what its strengths are, and then what these two conspicuous weaknesses of it are.
2: Mm-hmm. Dibao is China's primary public assistance program, so anyone who is poor whose income falls falls below the local Dibao line or the poverty line would be able to get the Dibao benefit and the benefit they get is the difference between their income and the local Dibao line. And for each locality, let's say each province, each county, they have a separate urban and rural Dibao line. So if you are a local resident, you apply and your income is subject to that local line. So the urban and rural lines are very different and migrants cannot get the Dibao benefit because they don't live in where they have the hukou. Um, so Dibao in recent years, Dibao is meant to be a last resort safety net for the very poor, right? Regardless of whether you can work, how old you are, so it's income based only. But in recent years, I think parallel to this poverty eradication in rural China, Dibao's coverage has declined both in urban and rural areas. In urban areas, currently it's about only 2.5% of the urban population who can get the Dibao. In rural areas, it's about 7.5, 8%. So Dibao's population coverage has declined, which means they really concentrate the benefits to the very poor in the urban and rural areas. Thus brings the problem of mistargeting. That is, if you want only very few people to get the benefit. Those who might qualify to get it could be squeezed out. So mistargeting is a continued challenge. I think the government officials are struggling with this as well. But they are also very afraid of the anti-corruption campaign. They are afraid of making a mistake by classifying somebody to be dibao eligible but that person what if is not really eligible or somebody makes a fuss about that person's eligibility so dibao i think needs to be reemphasized and re-looked at to be one of the major policies and programs post-2020. In fact, just two days ago, maybe by time difference it's yesterday here, uh, the Chinese government just issued a new regulation uh, that is invo- in inviting the societies and experts input about the role mm. of social assistance, which centers around Dibao uh, going forward. And the goal is by 2035, to have a comprehensive public assistance system in China that's not only Dibao, but surrounded by a network of public assistance programs. I think that that's the government's uh, already plan and action to move beyond 2020, to really build a long-term um, system to support those who have low income or who struggle in these different uh dimensions.
0: Besides Dibao, Gautin, there must be other tools available. Uh, You mentioned other social assistance programs, uh, and these are perhaps not for immediate poverty relief, short-term poverty relief, but for longer-term efforts, the kind of teach-a-man-to-fish type of thing, but also roads and electrification. Uh, How much impact do those things have, and how important does the government see them as part of poverty eradication mm-hmm. efforts
2: yeah uh, i think matt maybe you can talk about the infrastructure building you witnessed in in your village and then sure. i can talk about the other government yeah programs. matt why don't you go ahead
3: yeah i mean inf- yeah infrastructure development incredibly important right so there's there's the phrase yeah, right if you want to prosper first build a road uh and i i what I saw, you know, the government was taking that fully to heart. Um, you've seen incredible infrastructure development over the last uh, 10 years in Yunnan. About 10, 15 years ago, 40% of people in Yunnan did not have access to paved roads. And so when you think of places that are agriculture, dependent upon agriculture development, um, you know, getting their, their products to market, they uh, They cannot. Uh, if they don't have roads, and especially in a place like the village where I lived that has a rainy season for six months. So when I moved to Bangdong Village, they had no road in the village. The first week that I was there, they paved their first road in the village. So that's that's a game changer for people being able to get their crops in and out, right? Um, the They're building a highway right by the village. So uh, by the end of this year, that's supposed to be completed, which instead of the 24-hour overnight bus ride and minivan ride and hitchhiking that it took for me to go from Kuanming, the provincial capital, to this village, uh, by the end of this year, that's supposed to be roughly a, a five-hour smooth sailing highway drive into the province. So that makes uh, incredible difference in terms of people's access to markets, not only for their agriculture, um, cash crops that they're getting into predominantly tea in the very village where I lived but even access to things like tourism right tourism dollars that are huge have been huge for the transformation of Yunnan province specifically um and people being to go out being able to go out to work uh, and I think maybe more significantly access to education and hospitals, you know, healthcare—that's uh, part of this three assurances component of the one-two-three campaign. So that makes a, a huge difference. You know, I can't—I can't tell you. We were talking about vulnerability of life uh, earlier. You know, we're used to social safety nets and you know, insurance schemes and whatnot. That doesn't exist in these rural areas, and the way that people make their livelihoods very, very vulnerable. So them needing access to Healthcare, you know, hospitals uh, near nearby, that infrastructure is, is critical to um, a higher quality of life. Matt, them.
1: real quick, before we go back to Gauteng to talk about uh, these other sort of ancillary things besides deba How many people, what percentage of people in, Ban- Ban- Bangdong was only, what, 300 odd people, right? Yeah,
3: 350 do you, do you happen
1: to know how many of them, how many of the families were Dibao recipients?
3: Um, I don't know offhand. Um mm of the i mean over the course of my time there basically everyone uh everyone was officially lifted out of poverty uh, but that was uh that was not you know by the end standing on their own two feet that was receiving these payments from the government uh monthly or or quarterly and they would, you know they would post these on the bulletin board at the uh Sin, uh, the, the activity center in the village, you know, the Communist Party activity center, they would post those publicly and actually in a village WeChat group. Uh, and then there would always be discussion in that group about who was receiving how much and why and, a, you know, a little bit of back and forth, uh, about that between, between everyone, some, some bickering. So that was interesting to see that dynamic play out as well.
0: Uh, Matt, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, authorities posting publicly information about the debau D- And Gaoqin, you, you, you've you written about the social stigma that comes from the very intrusive means testing of the DBAO system. Can you talk brief briefly about that and whether the people who administer the system are, are trying to address this problem? Yeah, and,
1: and maybe also a- answer that earlier question that we had uh, about you know, ah, things, right. other yeah. things besides D- that. Uh, but yeah, th- that's a great question, Jeremy.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, I'll answer the other social assistance programs first. So right now there's a network of other social assistances such as education, medical, employment or disasters assistance. So those are catered to those people who are in desperate needs uh, catering to a very small proportion of the people. And one interesting feature is that the eligibility to those programs are often tied to one's Dibao eligibility. So if you are receiving Dibao and you have other needs, then the government officials will come to you and say, "Okay, you need some medical assistance, we can give it to you. Your kid is going to school, we can support your education. But for those who are not covered by DBAO, it's much harder to access these additional assist- assistance programs. So this is a challenge uh, in the policy design of the tied eligibility. But I think the government's recent, two days ago, issued a new policy uh, is trying to break them so that people who have different kinds of needs can get their needs addressed And they can leave Dibao if they have enough income, but can benefit from other uh, support they really need. So I think that's one direction. The other thing, uh, Jeremy, you mentioned about employment and education support, right? So boosting the human capital of those who are struggling with poverty. I think that's really important going forward, especially to invest in the education of the children in this poor, low-income households, um, the government has tried different ways to promote the employability of the people who are suffering from poverty. That's harder. Many of the people who are in poverty either have physical disability or uh, chronic illness, or they have family care responsibilities that make them uh, hard or impossible to seek uh, out of household job. So those are long-term challenges. I think not only China, other countries, including the U.S., struggle with this, that is uh, human capital investment through education works, but through job training doesn't always work. And that's a shared uh, challenge to poverty alleviation in many societies. Um, I'll talk about... Uh, um, Social
1: stigma. Yeah.
2: The stigma. That's a complicated issue. Certainly people uh, who receive welfare suffer from the stigma very much. I think probably more so, um, I was going to say probably more so in rural areas because of the close proximity of people's uh, social networks. But in urban areas, they also suffer from it. So I cannot make that Qualitative comparison. We just recently published the article looking at how teenagers, adolescents in both urban and rural China whose families receive debao, their, um, mental health is quite affected, severely affected. So that's a major concern because in the current design of debao and of poverty eradication, everything is so public. Uh, as Matt, you mentioned in your previous talks, you come to a household, that houses a poor family, in front of the door, you see this family's basic information posted, how many people live here, uh, how much income they have, why do they fall into poverty, do they have somebody who is sick or has a disability, those are all public, partly to assure there's no mistargeting, that this family is not designated as a poor family um, for no good reason. But of course, everything becomes public. Another aspect we haven't touched upon is the mass mobilization of this poverty eradication campaign. Uh, It's not President Xi who personally comes to rescue all the families out of poverty. It's all the many, many government officials or uh, semi-officials, some teachers, police officers, um, tax managers. I mean, all kinds of people are involved in lifting these poor people out of poverty. So each household that's designated as poor has a responsible unit and a responsible person who is personally responsible of making that family uh, leave poverty by the deadline, usually before the deadline. So it's not abstract. And to achieve that, it becomes personal. And information is revealed and not only of the poor household's information, but also the responsible person's information, phone number, what you can do. So it's, it's not, uh, the privacy insurance is, is. Very, uh, hard. And I don't think the government is trying to move in that direction.
1: Uh, Matt, did you experience, did you see this problem of social stigmatization of people who were DBA recipients
3: or recipients of other social assistance in, in Bangdong? I, I think the, the most conflict I saw over it was actually, um, yeah, the conflict over, uh, who received what and how much rather than the actual social stigma. Um, so so two dynamics of that. So in, in the village where I was, uh, it was seemed just on the cusp of people starting to have uh, some economic opportunity, right? So they'd gotten into cash crop of tea five, ten years earlier, and some people were actually doing okay with that, right? And some people were still... You know, at, at this minimum threshold, very, very poor. And so the question of, you know, that level of inequality, even in a small community, what does that look like? How does that affect relationships? I think the other dynamic was, um, for example, with a, a na- another neighbor of my neighbor, Zhang, who, uh, his parents were old and unable to work. His, his kid, he had two kids in school, his wife had mental health issues, and he himself was an alcoholic. And so he did not work. Uh, and so uh, government, you know, government handout to him and his family, uh, that was a, that was a topic of conversation in the village uh, as to whether he should receive that or not, or kind of discussed with him. You know, the, the local government sent, uh, s- sent contractors to come fix up his house for him, to come teach him how to sweep his house and maintain his house. Um, Did he follow up on that? Did he continue that maintenance? No. And so, uh, you know, social uh not unrest but a disagreement in the village about cases like that. is that right? Should he receive that uh, consensus was he should receive a little bit so that he's not starving, uh, but anything beyond that they would they would be disgusted with because he's not working and he doesn't he doesn't deserve that.
1: Speaking about people working or not working, uh, Gaoxin. After Andrew Yang's presidential campaign, uh, where he, he talked quite a bit about universal basic income or, or UBI, to the exclusion of, of right? Talk exactly about anything I else? He really did. <laughs> um, uh, you know, uh, later on, he wrote op-eds about how we Chinese Americans should drape ourselves in the flag, but whatever. Anyway, disappointed with him, but um. Uh, uh, now, especially with the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, here in the U.S., people have begun talking more and more about some form, uh, either UBI or uh, minimum guaranteed income, uh, some form of, of this kind of assistance. So uh, has this been happening in China too? Has this conversation been taking place in China too? Is, is there more discussion about such things and how receptive, uh, to such ideas do, do China's people and China's leaders appear to be?
2: that's an important uh, topic and one i'm very invested in um universal basic income in china is being discussed among very small circles of uh, um scholars and some international organizations for example the undp organized a small group discussion um about 2 years ago um So, there are some discussions, but the consensus is that the Chinese government will not uh buy uh, into it it 's China is too big, and this fundamental debate about who is the deserving poor, who is the non deserving poor is forever there, and that 's part of the Chinese culture, how people think who would uh, who could and is entitled to government support. So certainly similar to what we face in the U.S., this deserving versus non-deserving debate is ongoing and political.
3: Hmm.
2: I think in this area, China and the U.S. are similar, that uh, a lot of people, including politicians, are against the idea of universal basic income. So I don't see China going in that direction in the short run, anytime soon. But China is moving in that direction in some areas of social policy, such as uh, education support, right? So the Hu Jintao uh administration eliminated education fees for rural students and launched the compulsory education. That was big. That Before that, one would never imagine that. Now the government is also moving into investment in early education, zero to three, zero to six. And that's uh, tying back to our earlier discussion about human capital investment. I think that's important and that can be universal. People don't have controversies about children's values and potential contributions to the future. R- right. But one area that we debate about is mental health um, alcohol use, right? People look down upon that. I think in China going forward, uh, two things, mental health challenges and also family care responsibilities are going to be important discussions.
1: Well, I was telling people that that the Chinese Communist Party actually has a lot in common with the GOP uh, in this this idea that they cling to this meritocratic mythology uh to this idea. I mean so yeah, they could invest in early education because they think that's about getting people to the the starting line or whatever equally. But they they are very invested in this idea of sort of rugged individual bootstrapping and all that. And um, this belief in meritocratic competition. And, you know, a lot of poor Chinese still think of themselves just as Americans do as just temporarily embarrassed millionaires. (sighs) So
0: uh, on another subject, how has COVID-19 impacted China's push to eradicate poverty? Yeah, I saw a lot
1: of articles about how it supposedly set it back quite a bit. Do you think that's the case, both of you?
2: Uh, I'm writing an article about that based on official newspaper reports. In the newspaper uh, narratives, no. The Chinese government is so determined that they will achieve this goal no matter what. It could be COVID, it could be the floods, uh, other kinds of setbacks. But that doesn't uh, stop the Chinese government reach, reaching the poverty eradication goal. and. Uh, I mean, given the limited time we have, it's not hard to meet the one, two, three standards. You just invest money. And the Chinese government in the short run has that amount of money.
3: Yeah, exactly. And I I would just add, it will not affect their ability to achieve the goal, but it has affected people's lives in rural areas, right, deeply.
0: I was going to ask, Matthew, uh, if you're still in touch with people in Bangdong, do you have a sense of... Uh, how they were affected by the pandemic?
3: Yeah, so they—I mean—they weren't affected directly at all by you know infection or anything like that. Um, but supply chains for agricultural supplies, right? Uh, getting uh, being able to have their seed or fertilizer or uh, wh- you know whatnot for their livestock. Um, you know, you know, in agriculture cycles, right? If that, if that's happening in the spring, we haven't even seen the effects of, you know, their ability or inability to plant and and harvest for their agriculture inputs. So that's very significant. Perhaps more significant is, is people's ability to go out and resume their jobs in the factories, right? So the migrant workers, uh, who is a, you know, a large percentage of rural populations and, and where they get their income um unable to go out uh, to factories that aren't opened uh, up again and they don't have you know yeah social uh in income guarantees or unemployment uh and so they're just out of work and you can't just jump right back into being a farmer in the village so uh i i think a study that stanford reap uh, did uh, estimated about a hundred billion in lost wages for those migrant workers who are at home and unemployable and um no, yeah, no income.
2: I agree. I think Covid affects the millions of migrant workers and the low income and near poor, even middle class families in urban areas much more. A lot of rural areas are able to not get infected too much but urban areas it's much harder and the supply chain the ability to go out and make a living and sustain the level of uh, uh, livelihood it's much harder and that's not discussed in the context of the poverty eradication
1: Mm -hmm. Matt you've spoken before about how outside observers will sometimes romanticize the very things that contribute most directly to poverty and Maybe even will romanticize poverty itself. Uh, Tell us the story I've heard you tell it before and I thought it was intriguing uh, about your own epiphany uh, In this regard about I think his name was Liu Ge, older brother. Yeah, yeah,
3: Yeah, Liu Da Ge Um, So he was a guy in the village he became, uh, I would say, my best friend there. 50 year old guy, you know, stood up to about my shoulder. Born and raised in in Bangdong, which you know has always been an impoverished village. He helped me renovate a, a little old traditional home there in the village, which was my house for the two years. And yeah, one day after working on that house together, we were walking through the village back to his house on you know on the single loop. Uh, dirt road that goes through the village. And yeah, this idea, I, I I looked out at the mountains and I had this just spiritual experience of, Oh my gosh, you know, they just go fade to blue into the horizon and the, the tea terraces, right. Amazing tea terraces just go down into the river and these bamboo fronds. Just, I mean, incredibly picturesque and you would have, you know, people who would pay a lot of money to live in a place like that with that view. But you know, so I I turned to brother Leo and I say, you know, you were born here. Like is the beauty of this lost on you? Or do you still appreciate this? You know, or is it just boring normal to you? And he said, you know, it's because of these mountains that we are poor. And I was blown away by, by his answer. Just, you know, recognizing, yeah. and, And Dr. Gao was speaking to this earlier. The degree that, their lives have been cut off from economic opportunity. He was born poor, and he still is poor uh, because of these mountains. Um, So not only that, but also for me personally, realizing that something as innocuous as a mountain, uh, we could see it so differently based on our different life experiences
0: let's bring this back to the main question of how China is doing in its overall poverty eradication goal. Gauchin, you've been pretty critical of Debao for the leakage and mistargeting and stigmatization of poverty, but you also write quite positively about the overall success that China's had in at least significantly reducing poverty. Can you give us a sense of what China has achieved?
2: Uh, I think we need to give the Chinese government the credit of focusing on poverty eradication or alleviation. If you look around the world, if you pay attention to U.S. politics, no one is right now talking about poverty, put the livelihood and future of the poor families and their children at front and center of our dialogue. To that end, I think the Chinese government is doing a great good for the global society by focusing on poverty. Um, So I think China made great progress in reducing poverty, not only in the last five, 10 years, but over the past 40 years due to economic reforms and opening up. I think that trend will be challenged as China faces economic slowdowns but uh, I hope it will continue to pay attention to the livelihood and the well-being of those who suffer or who are at the lower end of the income distribution. Um I think another direction China should be going, and uh, based on the last two days of new policy, I think it probably is going that way, is to build A very comprehensive social insurance and social assistance program by both institutionalize those systems and investing money in them Uh, the european countries and the u.s spend a lot more as a proportion of their gdp on social welfare social insurance social assistance the u.s lags somewhat but still spends more than china china needs to catch up especially to uh, balance the urban rural development in uh, those regards. Lastly, I think China still faces this forever conundrum of urban rural division. When can we see the abolishment of the hukou system? When I first came to this country in 2001, I met with my doctoral advisor and we talked about the two societies, similar, different, and I introduced the hukou system. He was shocked. He said, what is that? Can can you
0: give us a a, a one-sentence definition of the hukou system? The hukou
2: system in China is the household registration system. If you're born in the rural areas and you have the rural hukou, you cannot move freely to the urban areas, or even if you did, you cannot go into a Urban public school, you cannot benefit from the urban health insurance, uh, housing programs or any other kind of social welfare programs such as DBAO. So it's an invisible wall that limits people's human rights, uh, entitlement of basic, uh, security and livelihood. I think we need to face that challenge.
1: Absolutely.
0: Matt, Matthew, have you, uh,
3: got anything to add? To that uh, I mean, that was a pretty good description of Hukou, you know, just seeing that, seeing that play.
0: I know. I mean, also to the general question, like, h- h- how's, well, how do you rate the Chinese government's performance in eradicating poverty? Oh, <laughs> one, gotcha. to oh. one to <laughs> ten. One to ten. yeah.
3: <laughs> man, we'll, we'll give it, we'll give it an eight. Uh, and a lot of that is is for effort and intentionality, right? I, I think... Um, here was my, here was my main takeaway from the village and how everyone talked about it. Uh, thanks be to Xi, uh, as the, as the poster child of this effort. And you can see him literally on, on posters throughout the village, right? It's, it's a lot less Mao posters in rural areas and more Xi posters anymore. And it's exactly because of what Dr. Gao was talking about at the very beginning. It was Xi that first put forth this goal in 2013, that was specific and measurable and time bound that said, Hey, we're going to do this by 2020 and no one else had done that before. There had been money invested, uh, but not a specific goal like this. And so uh, you know, when, when people were talking about in, in Western media complaining that she was going to be, you know, emperor for life uh, and, and dramatically affecting the political system, um, with these constitutional changes, instead saying 20 years of Xi is better than 10 years of Xi. So I would say people in rural areas who are living their best lives now, materially better off, they would, they would give it a, a eight or a nine or a 10, uh, thanks be to the party. Well,
1: not something you hear all that often here in the United States. Uh, Gao Qin and Matt, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. And what a delight to speak to both of you. But let's move on to recommendations. Uh, but First, it is the end of August now. We are bringing our donation campaign for Seneca to an end. So here's your last opportunity to help us out with a donation or a subscription. Just go to podcast.subchina.com. I want to thank all of you who've been so generous. It's just wonderful that so many of you have been able to, to help us out. We still need lots more help, so please go to podcast.supchina.com. On to recommendations, Jeremy, you first, uh, then Gaoqin, then Matthew, and I will back clean up. Jeremy, what do you got for us?
0: All right, something that doesn't have anything to do with China, really. It's a book called Clean, The New Science of Skin, by a man named James Hamblin, who's a doctor. And it looks at uh, the skincare industry, or perhaps one could call it the skincare confidence trick, uh, about uh, the enorm- it's an enormous economy, skin care. Uh, much of it is based on dodgy science that was first perpetrated by the likes of Procter Proct Gamble and Unilever, or, uh, as it was then known, the, the Lever brothers, who really invented modern marketing of, of soap and skincare products. And uh, it's it's fascinating, interesting, and in some ways controversial, because he's kind of a proponent of the idea that you don't really need to wash anything except your hands and that your your skin has a, a, a biome, in other words, an ecosystem of little bugs that live on it. And uh, basically, the less you mess with it, the better. Um, but it's not dogmatic. He doesn't try and convert you to the no-bathing cult. Uh, and it's uh, it's a wonderful, light, and fascinating read about an industry I hadn't thought that That much is such about. a
1: Jeremy Goldcorn kind of book, I tell you. I mean, that is like exactly the kind of thing you would read. I love it. That's a... That's a that's great. Actually, I'm going to read that. That sounds perfect, because I, I'm a big believer in that, too. I don't go so far as to say, that, I mean, I, I read an article recently that was...
0: Yeah, I mean, we noticed it when we used to have live podcasts, the odor uh, around you, Kaiser, but that's okay.
1: <laughs> hey, you know, some of us are not born with, we have like more apocrine sweat glands than the other kind. Because we're East Asian and uh, oh, okay. we don't actually have right. the said odor. We're blessed. Does the way. book
3: specifically address beard care for COVID beard care? <laughs> Jeremy, <laughs> no.
1: I see things. I can see them right now crawling around in that mess of years. <laughs> okay. Gautin, what do you have for us? Recommendation.
2: Um, I have uh, my two recent readings. One is a book by my... Columbia colleague Nira Khashogh is called Blaming Immigrants, mm. Nationalism and the Economics of Global Movement. She puts the immigration in both historical and global contexts and talks about why it's not an issue which is made an issue by politicians. The other book I've been reading is uh, Arthur Kleiman's memoir, it's called The Soul of Care, The Moral Education of a Husband and Doctor. Uh, you may know uh, Professor Kleinman as a psychiatrist who has been studying the Chinese societies for many years. And in this memoir, he talks about, reflects about his life and also providing care to his wife when she was very ill, um, both from professional and personal perspectives. Both are wonderful books.
1: Excellent recommendations. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you so much. The Soul of Care. That sounds great. And Blaming Immigrants. Matthew what do you have for us uh,
3: yeah I'm in the middle of a book right now Chinese village socialist state and it's kind of a classic I think it came out uh, at least my copy came out early 90s uh, and it's just this longitudinal study uh, by three academics of you know a, a Chinese or a county and various villages in this county uh, and uh, looking at th- uh, how the communist revolution and policies has affected these villages. Uh, so they, they describe it as the the party wooing and winning over these people and then losing the hearts and minds of the people actually uh, over, over the course of this study. Uh, so what's interesting for me is, you know, in our conversation today, um, and in my interactions with a lot of rural people that they are, are, you know, very strong support for the communist party. And so kind of this ebb and flow uh, of support, understanding historically, how, how this has played out, um, you know, in, in the seventies, eighties uh, being, being lost uh, now, perhaps uh, the hearts and minds being won over again, uh, at least some of them. And where does this go in the future?
1: fantastic i'm going to round this out with a yet another book recommendation which will be i guess our, our uh fifth book of today uh it's tom levinson's new book money for nothing i talked about tom levinson and how i i met him online because he's the son of joseph levinson who's one of the people who i've idolized for a long time whose whose ideas about modern china really were so formative in in my thinking uh but tom's new book uh, is a, a history of modern money and finance, um, about two-thirds of the way through a bit with it right now. And it so far, it, it focuses a lot on, um, Great Britain in the 17th and 18th centuries, uh, bringing familiar characters like Sir Isaac Newton into, you know, the, the development of, of finance. It's, it's really interesting how, uh, you know, our understanding of natural philosophy, of the natural world, of, of, of the sort of mathematization of the, the universe con- contributed so much to the development of finance um, and there's a couple of chapters that focus on the south seas bubble of 1720 which was just an astonishing thing i mean there's so much of this just sounds so much like you know the contemporary world of finance that we know it's it's an amazing story it's expertly told i i recommend it without reservation it's just a phenomenal book he's a great writer i'll read anything that he he puts out from now on so uh, thank you very much, Gaoqian and Matthew, for, for uh, participating in this.
3: It's a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Jeremy, thank you.
1: It, was always, it was always great to talk to you.
0: Absolutely.
3: The Seneca
1: Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at subchina.com, Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News, And make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network.